0: It is April 3rd, 2018, on a beautiful, warm Tuesday afternoon here on the West Coast of Florida. My name is Joel Tillis, and you have tuned in to The Soul Trap. It has been a very, uh, very special time here these last couple weeks. We've made a lot of new friends here at the Soul Trap and gotten to know, uh, know a lot of you for the first time. And we're excited to be able to come to you and share our broadcast, our thoughts, our ideas, our concepts, uh, our doubts, our concerns, our speculations, everything in between, and somewhere beyond that. We are glad to be with you, and I trust that this broadcast finds you in good health, good spirits, and as we. Oh, as we say almost every time, we trust that it finds you on that good and narrow way. I want to send a special shout out to um, Pastor Andrew Sluter and uh, his infamous, if not famous, sidekick, Brother Randy Keener. What a privilege it was for them to have us on the broadcast, back Backwoods Bible Broadcast on Facebook. You need to check them out. And uh, we try to post them on my own uh, personal Facebook, but also on the Soul Trap And we were on their show and many of you we've gotten to know via their show and uh, it is an honor to be your friend, uh, to be his friend I should say, it's an honor to be their friend and uh, I support his ministry. Wholeheartedly, and uh, what he's doing and what he's trying to accomplish. A tremendous, tremendous man of God, and we're privileged to be on that. And if you're not following him, you need to follow them on Thursday nights. Great broadcast, good way to get your Bible questions answered, and a good way to enjoy yourself in the Lord. Nothing wrong with having a good time and enjoying yourself. If you're a Christian, I don't think looking sour and acting sour makes you spiritual. I think that makes you stupid. Uh, But uh, they have a lot of fun, a lot of laughter, a lot of good times and a lot of good Bible doctrine and a lot of good balance. And again, we just wanted to say thank you. We're on the show a couple weeks ago. And uh, many of you have have since that time tuned into the Soul Trap, become followers of the Soul Trap, followers of myself. And we're excited about that listening to the podcast. Uh, do send us a message. You can reach us via Facebook. You can also um, email us at Pastor Tillis at Church dot org. That's Pastor Tillis at Church dot org. We love to hear from you, get to know you, talk to you a little bit more. You can certainly send us questions and uh, send us leads. Uh, in fact, I'm going to be doing a show here very soon about uh, a lead that somebody sent us—a so very interesting information—and we like to hear from you as much as possible. So you certainly get in touch with us. Well, you know, there are a lot of different things that we could be talking about going on in the news, and I suppose this is probably going to be old hat uh, for some of you. But, I, you know, with all the pressing things going on, I know we could be talking about different things, but I, I want to return to the subject of cryptozoology, uh, if we can. It's always been a fascinating, interesting subject to me because... On the one hand, there never appears to be any real hard empirical evidence, for lack of a better word, that a Sasquatch, a Bigfoot, abominable snowman, Yeti, uh, whatever you want to call it, there, there almost never is any real empirical um, clarity type evidence that says yes, this is there. At the same time, it's fascinating because this is one of those subjects, cryptozoology, that is rampant around the world. Now, I'm not talking about a few places here or there. I'm talking about in almost every culture around the world, there are the stories of things that are out there. You know, my daughter and I have been watching this new show on AMC called The Terror based on a novel which was loosely, loosely based on a true story uh, about a couple ships that are out there trying to make their way through the the, uh, Icelandic regions and they get trapped and there is some kind of something that they have named as the terror out there. Not a bear, they don't know what it is. It's some sort of wild animal, they think, but it struck up a conversation again in our home. And in the Tillis home, the question is not, hey, dad, how do you change a flat tire? Or, hey, dad, what's the best lawnmower? Or, hey, dad, how would you build a doghouse? It's, hey, dad, do you believe in Bigfoot? And that's a hard question to answer. It is, because as I said just a moment ago, there's not really any pure uh, empirical evidence. But yet, there is enough anecdotally, experientially, And certainly, uh, uh, anthropologically, that says maybe, maybe, there is something out there. And every once in a while in history, and every once in a while in current events, you come across a story that makes you stop and ponder and think, maybe, maybe. I'm not talking about your local park, and I'm not talking about going down to your local campsite, but maybe out in the quote-unquote boondocks in the everglades, in the mountainous regions, in the areas where man has yet to really permeate, even though he may have penetrated. Maybe there is something out there. Maybe not entirely biological. Maybe not entirely alter dimensional Maybe something in between. I don't know. I don't know. There is a story in the 20th century that makes us stop and think about what may lie out there it is the story of Dialtov the the Dialt the Diat Pass it's a russian name and so forgive me for struggling to pronounce it but it's D Y A T L O V the Dyatlov Love Pass it is not a story that is necessarily going to change the geopolitical landscape, and it's not a story that's going to unravel the mysteries of the time-space continuum. But it is one of those stories that reminds us that, although we may not have the empirical evidence as we've talked about, there is certainly experiential and anecdotal evidence that there are more things out there in the dark than we often realize or can explain. What draws me to this particular case, the Dyatlov Pass, is... That while there are reasonable, in the sense that we are comfortable processing it with our own world view, while there are reasonable uh, explanations, there are empirical, rational reasons why people go missing in the woods. We know that. There are things like weather conditions, human mistakes, natural occurrences that, that occur. But what draws me to this case is that it's very hard when you study the facts of the Dyatlov Pass incident, It's very hard to simply justify what happened there by natural causes. From China to New Jersey, from the Hopi Indians to the stories surrounding Mount Shasta, across the world, from all different kinds of backgrounds, termed and described in all different kinds of ways and description, there is something out there in the woods. Or at least that's what vast, vast arrays of different people have said. Maybe it's something unearthly, maybe it's something inner earthly. But if you were to ask a large portion, going back thousands of years of human beings, they would tell you that there is something out there. The Dyatlov Pass was named after the leader of the hiking group that went missing, Igor Dyatlov. The group consisted of graduate students from the Polytechnic Institute. Their plan was to trek 350 kilometers on skis through the forests and northern urals to Mount Otterin. Actually, the name Mount Otteren, O-T-O-R-T-E-N, loosely translates in the Monsi language as, quote-unquote, don't go there. How ironic that is. On February 12, 1959, the Nine failed to report to the scheduled endpoint at a village called Vise. As a result of rescue efforts, the group's tent was found on the slope of a mountain. The mountain is called the Mountain of the Dead in the Mansi language. On February 26, investigators later determined that the tent had been cut with a sharp object from the inside. The skiers also left all their belongings in the tent, while apparently trying to urgently flee the campsite. After following footprints down the hill for about 1.5 kilometers, some of these fleeing were wearing only socks. Some were even barefoot. The search party found five dead bodies. Some of the hikers were wearing only underwear. Their bodies showed signs of a struggle, such as fractured skull and broken ribs. One of the women had their tongue missing. The search for the remaining four travelers who were located further into the woods took more than two months. The Soviet criminal investigation in 1959 failed to establish the causes of the incident. The final report said that a, quote, unknown compelling force killed the people. The incident, which remains one of the most chilling unsolved mysteries of the 20th century, sparked many theories in which investigators attempted to rebuild the chronology of the events. The numerous explanations put forward included an avalanche, Military tests seen by the hikers that the government was trying to hide, a hostile encounter with an unknown creature, paranormal activity, or a run-in with the Mansi people, villager people, a backwood people that lived there in the mountain region. Access to the region was closed to the expedition and hikers for up to three years after the incident. Three years. Now, that's a pretty long time to keep an area closed because of an easily explained error that led to their deaths. Of course, If you were hunting something out there, if you wanted privacy to try and track down something you thought was out there, three years might be more explainable to close down an entire region. Investigators eventually were able to piece together the steps leading up to the moments of the tragedy. Using their journals and forensic evidence, they were able to arrive and understand, in essence, if not in detail, how. The event unfolded at the Dyatlov Pass. The group arrived by train at Yvedel, a city at the center of the northern province, in the early morning hours of 25, uh, January twenty-fifth, 1959. They then took a truck to Visey, a lorry village that is the last inhabited settlement in the northern region. While spending the night in Visey, the skiers purchased and ate loaves of bread, to keep up their energy levels for the following day's hike all appeared to be normal. On the 27th of January, they begin their trek. On the 28th of January, one of the members, Yuri Yudin, was forced to turn back due to knee and joint pain that made him unable to continue the hike. The remaining group of nine people continued the trek. Diaries and cameras found around their last campsite made it even easier for investigators to be able to track the group's route up to the day preceding the incident. On the 31st of January, the group arrived at the edge of a highland area and began to prepare for climbing. In a wooded valley, they cached supplies, surplus food, and equipment that would be used for the trip back. The following day, February 1st, the hikers started to move through the pass. It seems they planned to get over the pass and make camp for the next night on the opposite side. But because of worsening weather conditions, so far as can tell, snowstorms and decreasing visibility, they lost their direction and deviated west, up toward the top of Kolat Siaki, the side of the mountain. Now, when they realized their mistake, the group decided to stop and set up camp there on the slope of the mountain. It's rather important that you understand that at this point, we're not talking about a couple tourists we are talking about people that were trained hikers they understood the area they understood what was going on they knew how to survive and handle the situation once they realized their mistake they didn't panic there was no uh, cause for any sort of a emergency rather than moving 1.5 kilometers downhill to the forested area which would have offered more shelter from the elements they decided to go ahead and stop on the side of the mountain now, Yudin, who was with them, postulated that Dyatlov probably did not want to lose the altitude they had gained, or he might have even decided to go ahead and practice camping on the mountain slope. Either way, it's speculation as to why they were not more careful to some degree at the camping site. Again, these were well-trained, highly developed campers and hikers, and yet there seems to be something amiss here. They're losing the way, they're losing their bearing, they're in a hurry. Something is not jiving 100%. And while there are no direct entries, there were signs of them appearing to be hurried. But it may be at this point, other than that, everything appeared to be normal. Now, before leaving, Dyatlov had agreed that he would send a telegram to their sports club as soon as the group returned to Vise. It was expected that this would happen no later than February 12th, but... Dyatlov had told Yudin before his departure from the group that he expected to be a little bit longer due to weather conditions and simply taking their time. So when the 12th passed and no messages had been received, there was no immediate reaction, as delays of a few days were common with such expeditions. It was not until the relatives of the travelers demanded a rescue operation on February 20th that the head of the institute sent the first rescue group consisting of volunteer students and teachers. Later the army and militia forces became involved, with planes and helicopters being ordered to join in the rescue operation. On february twenty sixth, the searchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent on the side of Kolatsiacl, the mountain. The campsite baffled the search party. Mikhail, the student who found the tent, said, quote, The tent was half torn down, and covered with snow. It was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes have been left behind. Investigators said that the cut that the tent had been cut open from the inside. Now there has been question as to that, because exactly how would you determine whether a tent had been cut from the inside or not? You say, Well, if you found the tent door closed, and then a hole in the side, you would have to assume that they cut their way out, and that is true. However, the cuts were not razor cuts, they were more like slashes, and the question has often been queried and put to investigators, was the tent closed and they cut their way out, or was the tent closed and something cut their way in? Eight or nine sets of footprints left for the people who were wearing only socks, mind you. A single shoe or even barefoot could be followed. Leading down toward the edge of a nearby wooded area, on the opposite side of the pass, 1.5 kilometers to the northeast, is where they found them heading. However, after 500 meters, only 1,600 feet, these tracks were covered with snow. At the forest's edge, under a large cedar, the searchers found the visible remains of a small fire along with the first two bodies. Shoeless, dressed only in their underwear. The branches on the trees were broken up to five meters high, some suggesting that one of the skiers had climbed up to look for something, perhaps the camp, or maybe they had climbed up to get away from something. Between the cedar and the camp, the searchers found three more corpses, who seemed to have died in poses suggesting that they were attempting to return to the tent they were found separately at distances of 300 480 and 630 meters from the tree searching for the remaining four travelers took more than two months they were finally found on may 4th under four meters of snow in a ravine 75 meters farther into the woods from the cedar trees these four were better dressed than the others and there were signs that those who had died first had apparently relinquished their clothes to the others One of them was wearing the other's fur coat and hat. Another one had their foot wrapped in a piece of the previously passed away's wool trousers. A legal inquest started immediately after finding the first five bodies. A medical examiner found no injuries which might have led to their deaths, and it was eventually concluded that they had all died from hyperthermia. One of the hikers did have a fairly good-sized crack in his skull. But how that came to be, and if that was the cause of death, no examination was able to prove. An examination of the four bodies which were found in May shifted the narrative as to what had occurred, however. Three of the skiers the hikers had fatal injuries. One had major skull damage, and both had major chest fractures. According to one doctor, the force required to cause such damage would have been extremely high, comparing it to the force Of a car crash. Notably, the bodies had no external wounds related to the bone fractures, as if they had been subjected to a high level of pressure. However, major external injuries were not found on any of them. One of the hikers was missing her tongue, eyes, and part of the lips, as well as facial tissue and fragments of skull bone. She also had extensive skin maceration on the hands. There was initial speculation that the indigenous Monsi people might have attacked and murdered the group for encroaching upon their native land, but investigation indicated that the nature of their deaths did not support this hypothesis. The hikers' footprints alone were visible, and they showed no sign of hand-to-hand struggle. There was nothing else out there, so far as anybody could tell with them. Although the temperature was very low around that time, the storms coming in, the dead were only partially dressed. Some of them only had one shoe, while others had no shoes or wore only socks. Journalists reporting on the available parts of the inquest mentioned several of the different issues at hand. For instance, six of the group members died of hypothermia and three of fatal injuries, yet all were nowhere near dressed the way that they should be. There were no indications of other people near the mountain apart from the nine travelers, The tent had been ripped whether from the open or from the side, but for whatever reason, nobody had gone through the front of the tent. The victims had died six to eight hours after their last meal. Traces from the camp showed that all group members left the campsite of their own accord on foot. And to dispel the theory of the attack by the indigenous Monsie people... One doctor stated that the fatal injuries of the three bodies could not have been caused by another human being because, quote, the force of the blows had been too strong and no soft tissue had been damaged. Released documents contained no information about the condition of the skier's internal organs. There was no survivors of the incident. At the time, the verdict was that the group of members all died because of a compelling natural force. The inquest officially ceased in May 1959 as a result of the absence of a guilty party. The files were sent to a secret archive, and the photocopies of the base became available only in the 1990s, although some parts and pictures were missing. No one reported anything. No one saw anything. There was, however, one other report that came out around that time. There was another group of hikers. 31 miles south of the incident. They reported that on the same night, they saw strange orange orange spheres in the night sky to the north on the night of the incident. Similar spheres were observed in other areas and adjacent areas continually during the period from February to March of 1959. All of these were seen by various credible independent witnesses, including the meteorological service and the military of the Soviet Union. However, these sightings were not noted in the initial investigation in 1959. Many of those who had remained silent for 30 years reported these facts about the accident. One of them was actually the former police officer, Lev Ivanov, who led the official inquest in 1959. In 1990, he published an article which included his admission that the investigation team had no rational explanation for the accident. He also stated that, after his team reported that they had seen flying spheres, he then received direct orders from high-ranking regional officials to dismiss the claim and never speak of it again. So what happened out there? What are the theories? The first, the obvious, is that maybe it was an avalanche. The theory that an avalanche caused the hiker's death while initially popular has since been under extreme scrutiny and questioning. One writer says, quote, that the group woke up in a panic and cut their way out of the tent either because an avalanche had covered the entrance to their tent or because they were scared that an avalanche was imminent. Better to have a potentially repairable slit in a tent than risk being buried alive in it under tons of snow just doesn't seem to add up. They were poorly clothed, we are told, because they had been sleeping and ran to the safety of the nearby woods, where trees would help slow oncoming snow, but most hikers in that day would not sleep in as scantily clothed as they were, being as cold as it was. In the darkness of the night, they got separated, we are told, into two or three groups. One group made a fire, hence the burned hands, while the other tried to return to the tent, recovering their clothing. Since the danger had apparently passed, but it was too cold, and they all froze to death before they could locate their tent in the darkness. At some point, some of the clothes may have been recovered or swapped from the the dead. But at any rate, the group of four whose bodies were most severely damaged were caught in an avalanche and buried under four meters of snow. That's more than enough to account for the compelling natural force the medical examiner describes. As far as the one hiker who lost the eyes and tongue and lips, well, that had to be removed by scavengers who saw fit only to apparently scavenged that one particular body. Okay, that sounds somewhat plausible, it had to be an avalanche, however, there are still holes in that theory. Evidence contradicting the avalanche theory includes the fact that the location of the incident did not have any obvious signs of an avalanche having taken place. An avalanche itself would have left certain patterns and debris distributed over a wide area. The bodies found within 10 days of the event were covered with a very shallow layer of snow. And had there been an avalanche of sufficient strength to sweep away the second party, these bodies would have been swept away as well. This would have caused more serious and different injuries in the process and would have damaged the tree line. Over a hundred expeditions to the region, another writer states, were held since the incident and none of them ever reported conditions that might create an avalanche. A study of the area using up-to-date terrain-related physics revealed that the location was entirely unlikely for such an avalanche to have occurred. The, quote, dangerous conditions found in another nearby area, which had significantly steeper slopes, were observed in April and May when the snowfalls winter were melting. During February, when the incident occurred, there were no such conditions which would have told or foretold of an avalanche. For that matter, all of these were experienced skiers. One was even studying for his master's certificate in ski instruction and mountain hiking. Neither of the two men who were leading the party would have likely been willing to camp anywhere in the path of a potential avalanche. Well, others suggest the idea of infrasound. Infra, I-N-F-R-A, sound. Another hypothesis, popularized by Donnie Icar's 2013 book, Dead Mountain, is that wind going around the mountain created a sort of a vortex street, he says, which can produce what's called infrasound. Infrasound capable of inducing panic attacks in humans. According to Icar's theory, the infrasound generated by the wind as it passed over the top of the mountain was responsible for causing physical discomfort and mental distress in the hikers. Icar claims that because of their panic, the hikers were driven to leave the tent by whatever means necessary and fled down the slope. By the time they were further down the hill, they would have been out of the infrasound's path and would have regained their composure, but in the darkness would be unable to return to their shelter. The traumatic injuries suffered by the three of the victims were the result of stumbling or tripping down a large ravine. Now that's a pretty interesting subject, and that's very, very, I don't know, it's out there a little bit, but not too far out of the realm of possibility, because some of our diplomats from Cuba would tend to agree that sound can play a vital role in the mental health of a person. But that is a hard one to prove without being able to actually recreate the conditions of infrasound. Others suggest it was a military test. Some riders believe it was a military accident, which was then covered up. There are records of parachute mines being tested by the Russian military in the area around the time the hikers were there. Parachute mines detonate a meter or two before they hit the ground and produce similar damage to those apparently experienced by the hikers. Heavy internal damage with very little external trauma. There were also glowing orbs reported in the sky in that general vicinity, possibly caused by such ordinances. This theory uses uh, animals to account for the missing parts on the one hiker. People believe the bodies that were found were moved and placed so as to try to cover up military operation. Now, military operation using people is no new thing. Nick Redfern, in his book, Body Snatchers in the Desert, speaks about how that it was very possible that the government... U.S. government was using um, live test dummies, so to say, and that—that's what was actually found at Roswell. Uh, others think that um, others think that it was very, very possible that uh, it, you know during MK Ultra they were using real people, and that's certainly true. That has been proven true. So these people think, well, maybe it was the Russian government. Maybe they were doing something, some type of test. It's possible. It's possible that there were radiological weapon testing going on, mummification testing going on, but uh, it still leaves many holes in the list. Why cover it up in the way that they did? I mean, trying to cover it up like that when it would be easy enough just to put a bunch of vodka and some guns around and say everybody got mad and shot each other. That's not the first time a bunch of Siberian hikers have gotten drunk and done done things they've regretted. There are much easier ways to cover up. Then there's the paradoxical undressing issue. Some people simply say that because they became disoriented and hyperthermic, it's paradoxical yet true that oftentimes behavior in hypothermic environments, people will feel a sense of burning. And then that's why the hikers undress themselves. Maybe, maybe, but all of them at the same time, in the same way, And then it comes to the cryptozoological encounter. The Russian Yeti. The theory that the group was killed by a menk, M-E-N-K, or the Russian Yeti. The premise is that the skier's injuries were such that only a creature with superhuman strength could have caused them. Is it possible? Is it possible that on that particular night, they heard something? saw something, encountered something so profound, so powerful, that all of their senses, all of their training, all of their normal composure that you need to have, hiking in the wild, dealing with the potential of avalanches, the potential of hypothermia, the potential of a broken leg, of being injured, all of the normal skills that they would have had in their hiking, all of them became, at that moment and instance, meaningless, Is it possible that they encountered something out there that they were not prepared to encounter? Whatever happened to those hikers, the KJB themselves became involved in it. In fact, there was no actual outside uh, uh, examination of the bodies allowed by the KJB. Their blood, their body, everything had to be preserved and protected by the KJB. No one was allowed to research anything. A lot of people were very concerned. But the fact of the matter is that the KJB was instantly involved, and a lot of people believe that is very significant. Another interesting clue is that the Russian report, which was not brought out until much later, says that two men were found under the cedar in their underwear, and they had actually burns on them. Again, Was this a fire-breathing Yeti? I don't know, but there's a lot of holes. And simply saying that an avalanche or something like that just doesn't seem to plug up all the holes. The question is, what happened out there? What was it that took place? Was it something from the sky? What is a military operation? Was it too much vodka? What terrified these hikers so much? What frightened them so deeply? that they were willing to abandon everything that they knew was right to do in a survival situation and simply try to get away. One option is a mink. It's the Monsi language for the term forest giant. A very similar description to that of a yeti. A similar description to what we give the ancient Indians gave as a Sasquatch a very similar description to what we see around the world, across anthropological borders, that out there in the dark, out there in the shadows, behind the trees, in the ravines, in the caverns, where man may have penetrated but man does not permeate, there is still something out there. some experts claim to be a Bigfoot scream. Recorded in the state of Washington by a group of campers in 1971, it is regarded as the highest quality audio of the creature ever captured. So, remember that next time somebody invites you to go camping. What happened out there on the side of that mountain in Russia? I don't know. I don't know. Nobody else knows. Maybe it was an accident, maybe it's explainable, maybe it's not explainable, but there sure is a lot of unexplainable going on out there in the night, in the woods.